Hello, I'm Florian Ritzman, and this is the Future Farm Podcast. On today's show, we return to our proverbial roots, which is regenerative farming and carbon sequestration. In previous episodes, we heard from a spectrum of farmers who had either made the jump and gone regen, or were eyeing the opportunity. So for this episode, we thought it would be useful to put together a panel of specialized agronomists and talk about their experiences working with all kinds of farmers. And without any further ado, let's start the show. With me, there are three experts in the field of carbon sequestration and regenerative farming, all coming from slightly different angles. Anthony, please. Anthony, could you give us your full name? What do you do? Where do you live? And uh, what's your contribution to, to carbon sequestration and regenerative farming? My name's Anthony Ellis. I'm an agronomist by trade, but I also farm with my father in, in Cornwall, got a, a small mixed family farm. Um, in the last uh, few years, I've started to transition our farm to a more regenerative model. And off the back of that, a number of customers across the south of England have um, looked to join us on that uh, on that journey towards a, a transition and looking, taking a bigger focus on soil and soil health and, and carbon sequestration. You went to Australia and that's where you picked up your focus on soil. Is that correct? Yeah, so uh, my wife and I emigrated to Australia a number of years ago, and I spent um, my time there working in and around the Barossa Valley. As I started sort of visiting customers, I, I worked as an agronomist there, same as here, really. But as I started driving around and, and seeing different farms, I, I started to notice that one or two of them were doing things a little bit differently. And as the recent drought that they're just sort of coming out of now, as that really started to bite in twenty. 16 2017 and farmers started to really have to destock and and get rid of a lot of their livestock there were one or two farmers in the area that that were keeping keeping the livestock numbers up and keeping feed in front of them and so um that was uh, i i sort of started to ask a few questions and there was a, a guy called andrew cop who lives just uh, in the top of the adelaide hills northern mount lofty ranges and he had just come back from a uh, a busman's holiday if you like to America and done the whole gay brain, Greg Judy, Joel Salentin trip around. And, and he introduced us to this idea of, of regenerative farming and adaptive paddock grazing, mob grazing, whatever you want to call it. And so that was sort of my introduction to the concept and the idea. I threw myself in at the deep end and read Charles Massey, Call of the Reed Warbler, which was pretty hard work as, a, as an introduction to, to regenerative agriculture. But that, that sort of, yeah, that sparked... Uh, sparked an interest and, and and the light bulb started to flick on if that makes sense well indeed thank you very much now uh, tom tolput over to you what do you do and how did you come to this whole uh, complex of soils and livestock i suppose is your specialty? i graduated from half adams and got into animal nutrition after i after i finished college and um we were working with an american nutrition company so yeah i am um, i farm in cornwall we run about a 700-acre organic farm based around beef and um, arable rotations. And about 25 years ago, upon graduating from Harper Adams, I was recruited by an American nutrition company who were basing their diets on taking a lot of forage samples from the farm. And um, we noted that as we were using less nitrogen on the farm, they were encouraged. We were we were on about a 220 kilo a hectare nitrogen input type 
grazy um, scenario, but as we, as they encouraged us to use less nitrogen, we were growing grass, which was higher in sugar and higher in dry matter and lower in protein. It was much more balanced to an animal's um, and an animal's needs. So we decided to go organic on our home farm and we were sort of lazy organic for a long time where we, we were sort of encouraged by the, the various um, governing bodies that saw indeed, you know, it, it was. But um, I then had the chance to, by chance, I bumped into a sort of a soil scientist called Gary Zimmer at an um, organic dairy conference. And um, it turns out he, in his previous life, was an animal nutritionist. And he, he kindly invited me to go to America, much as Anthony was saying then about these sort of trips to sort of um, help crystallize your ideas. and. Um, after sort of 10 days in America looking at grass-based farms and um, the potential in soil improvement within the organic sector completely changed my view on things. So I came back and started to work out how we could, um, how this could look within the UK. By chance, uh, Anthony and I had met before and worked together previously. He'd been on this, his sort of regenerative journey. I'd been on my own with Gary Zimmer and we started to look at the opportunities within it and an average, the average UK farm produces seven and a half tons of dry matter of food, forage from the farm. Um, there's organic farms now producing in excess of 11 with no sort of artificial fertilizer input. So from a purely an animal-based perspective, the feed was better balanced. From a, from a financial perspective, the, the potential to make a lot more money from better grazing, from small soil improvements, is huge. So there's a sustainability, there's a practical sort of side to it and a, a financial sustainability. And then having sort of worked with Anthony and Craig looking at the soil health and soil side of it, there's a huge carbon potential and, and, and soil health potential. So it seems within that, this agriculture that we're sort of all um, advocating that it's sustainable, it's financial, it's carbon sensible. It's a, it has a huge future. It's, it's a win-win-win and so rarely yeah. that happens. Okay, so that's what we've heard in previous podcasts. So this kind of the kind of thing I want to dig into a little bit more. But before we do, let's give Craig a chance to introduce himself. Who do you work for, and um, what's your angle? Yeah, hi, thank, thanks for having me. My name's Craig Patrick. I work for a business called Precision Decisions, and as you can probably tell, I'm, I'm based up in the north here in North Yorkshire, uh, just outside of York. And our business is predominantly a precision uh, agriculture service provider, and it's been established for over 15 years now. And my personal role within the business is very, very much on a consultancy basis. So I oversee a lot of our in-field soil services, so direct services that we provide to farmers, anything ranging from soil sampling uh, or soil connectivity scanning surveying all the way through to data management with things such as yield mapping biomass maps from from sensors things like that i get a lot more hands-on with with farmers and, and customers to help make the most of that data and improve uh, the management decisions and processes that go on in in the world of crop establishment predominantly from an arable background is the business however we we apply that to uh, livestock and arable situations now before that uh, i'm a farmer's son uh, first and foremost um whether it's uh, by luck or by chance, never got involved in, in the farm directly. Uh, my father didn't push me and my mother probably would have killed me if I did. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we, we, no, we no longer have a farmer dad since retired. So, yeah, he, he retired just shortly before I was in a position to maybe try and get my teeth stuck into it on, on a personal level. Uh, so I spend my day job helping other farmers, whether that be, be a, a small holding 
farmer just down the road or a large estate somewhere in the country looking to to get involved with understanding the soils a bit better and a lot of the data and technology that's surrounding the farming these days so they couldn't take the farming out of you all right no <laughs> so i'd like to start with tom i hope the connection holds up uh, it's, it's a bit iffy, but we'll try um now specific to livestock and carbon sequestration so we're kind of jumping a little bit from the whole regenerative thing we're going to take that as a given but we'll come back to it and into the idea of measuring carbon in the soil particularly when it comes to livestock in a previous podcast uh, we spoke with tom gregory tom and, and his wife sophie are organic dairy farmers in devon tom so in passing explained to me that you know when it comes to livestock he was at very at the very beginning of the journey in fact when we were speaking to him he had um, someone on his land sampling the soil and he told me that essentially the, the complexity of measuring carbon in a livestock environment is much more difficult than it is uh in a for example in an arable in the arable world and he said there's just a lot more variables going on that was his quote a lot more variables going on and so what i'd like to ask you is um well what are those variables perhaps you can explain uh, that he might have meant uh, and uh, what makes livestock so different from um, the arable side. So uh, Tom, uh, what are those variables that our man Tom might have been talking about? I guess the variables um, uh, sort of range around the setup of the farm. We now know that permanent pastures hold a huge amount more um, soil organic matter, soil biology, um, if, if, they're, if they're well managed. And generally within a, in a livestock um, sector, especially if they've evolved from the dairy farms, the fields around the buildings because they're quite often used as a transit position you know that the cows go across those fields to get access to other fields farmers are very loath to cultivate or plow them they're usually very nutrient dense the closer they are to the slurry pit or the, to the buildings farmers like to spread the nutrients as close as they can to the farms for purely practical or pragmatic reasons um, so we find the variation within the livestock sector absolutely huge on our own farm the permanent pastures which have had animals grazing them for probably millennia they can be two to three times higher in soil carbon soil organic matter so there's there's a lot of biology there's a lot of health and, and these um fields have the potential to be more resolute in a dry period because there's so much organic matter holding these nutrients holding moisture they're less variable in a dry time whereas the more arable parts or the temporary lays um, sometimes don't have this acquisition or this maintenance of organic matter so from a nutrient point of view from a soil carbon point of view there's terrific range around the farm and of course they also have access to um to organic manures um, and these can be hugely important in terms of utilizing, you know, and reducing the amount of inputs that are required on a farm. So he's absolutely right. The variances are huge. They're generally a good thing because, you know, that there's reserves of nutrients, huge reserves of potential organic matter and organic fertilizers, which are, which are good for the soil. And so, yeah, there's a genuine advantage to having livestock and, um, I think the, the latest data that we're getting on all the soil analysis that we're doing would really indicate that a well-run livestock farm with temporary or perennial or permanent pastures has generally a much healthier soil because of the nature of perennial cropping and, um, and correct grazing. He said when it comes to baseline measurement, you know, it's not like I have 
carbon calculator man come not even visit my land and tell me kind of roughly where my starting point is uh, and i suppose it has something to do with the distribution of the land and what you just said it tends to be more nutrient rich closer to the farm but different in other parts of the land he said i'm almost forced to start sampling my land every field individually that has a high cost to it that's a barrier to entry for me that's something that in an arable world you probably don't need to do at least not to that extent is that something that you you'd echo is that correct or is there a different view here i guess i have a slightly different view he's absolutely right and what we're starting to do is is do um sampling on a one or two hectare basis because the ranges are so great but that in many instances is actually showing um advantages because it's showing that you know areas close to the buildings or near manure stores have very high levels of nutrients and organic matter that means that by getting a better idea of certainly fields but maybe even areas within fields you can target nutrients to increase the production and the resilience in parts of the farm with low production. Where you've got high nutrient levels, you don't put, you need to put any fertilizers on. So whilst there is a cost to this, there's also, it can actually uh, highlight some huge advantages and actually mean you can target your nutrients and your any purchase inputs to a much greater degree. So it is a cost, but in many instances, that journey to understanding that the sort of regional differences and variances across fields or across um, a grazing platform can bring advantage it, it can increase outputs it can it can mean targeting what you you know the, the valuable resources of your own organic manures as well just something to add to what tom was saying there just just from my perspective with dealing with livestock and arable farmers and it's something that i've seen with, with, with working with tom over the last couple of years on on his own farm as well as others in the area and I always tend to find that livestock farmers, uh, they're, they're almost battling on two fronts compared to an arable farmer. You know, it, on one side of the brain, we're thinking about the animals and the livestock and all the attention to detail that goes in there. And it's often the soils and the crop inside of their enterprises that tend to get overlooked or less prioritised. So when it comes to things like understanding soil through soil analysis or, or maybe dedicating a certain amount of expenditure to researching that part of the farm and trying to better it. It's often a slow starter for livestock farmers because all of that attention to detail is on the animals. However, over the last few years, we're starting to see within the industry a lot more livestock farmers really get a hold of understanding soil health because they can see if they grow better crops uh, through better soil, they're going to get better productivity from their animals. So as we start to look more in depth uh, on livestock soils, suddenly we're really starting to understand actually what it is good soil health should look like within a livestock farm whereas in the arable world farmers have been looking quite intensively at their soils for a number of years now whether it be through a regular space gps soil sampling like like tom referenced to that's still quite quite new within the livestock sector just because it, it's not always been that priority you know they've always had that other thing and that other um, side of, of the business that needs their attention to detail, which is often seen as a more living and breathing part to their business. Um, but it, we're starting to see the, the tide change, I think. Thank you. Um, so we're moving from a focus on the animal towards a more holistic focus, which includes the soil. Yeah, that is a journey. Okay, uh, now over to Anthony. Slight change of scenery. In another episode, our second one, where we did talk about carbon exclusively, we had Ali Caperon, who is um, uh, works for the NFU, but she's also um, an apple farmer in, in Hampshire. Her quote um, that I'd like to play back to you is uh, where she says, carbon sequestration 
or regenerative farming in that context uh, that was used uh, interchangeably uh, works if you are working across thousands of acres and broad acre. It doesn't work very well for my sector for fruit and veg, plants and flowers. That's something as a as a layman, somebody who's not you know tilling the soil, or actually in your case <laughs> you don't till the soil. <laughs> uh, you know, that doesn't mean much to me. And I'd like if you do to to perhaps you know put some meaning into that. Why does Ali think that arable farmers have it a bit easier when it comes to making their soil healthier and measuring carbon than, than a perennial farmer like her or a horticultural farmer? Care to help? Um, so I, I, I guess there's um, there's a few different uh, points within that to, to pick apart. I mean, firstly, I I don't see size of holding as a as a barrier to improving soil health or improving soil organic carbon content. There are lots and lots of different reasons to to improve organic matter and organic carbon content of the soil. That that um, and, and there's really only only one of those reasons is that you might one day get paid for it um, if you start looking into into soil health and everything if you're improving soil organic matter and soil organic carbon then you've got nutrient cycling uh, improvement of nutrient cycling uh, nutrient retention you've got moisture retention you've got friability and workability of the soil all of these things are net benefits to us as farmers from improving soil organic matter content so from that regard yeah i think it doesn't matter whether you're farming an allotment of a few square meters to covering thousands of acres there's lots of good reasons to uh, to improve soil organic carbon. I suspect what she's sort of alluding to is that when you start looking at um, some of the schemes that are already up and running around paying for soil organic carbon, a lot of them focus very heavily on, on the arable side of things. Um, and I think if you follow the follow the money, to coin a phrase, there's a couple of reasons for that. Firstly, historically, arable ground has been more intensively managed, more intensively tilled, and will have therefore lost a lot more organic matter, organic carbon. And therefore, there's a lot more potential then to put that back with changes in practice and what have you. So if you're looking at being paid for sequestering carbon, you're going to go to the soil that's got the least amount of carbon in it to start with. So most of the schemes will chase the arable acreages for that. So I suspect that's probably what she means. I mean, as far as fruit and veg industry goes, I mean, there's, there's some really good um, veg guys down this way that are, are really starting to focus on soil health and, and reducing tillage and improving organic matter content um, with strip-till veg and all, and that sort of thing, which is which is really um, kind of at the cutting edge of the veg industry. So, you know, there, there are there are guys looking at doing things differently in that regard. So, um, yeah, does that sort of cover some of what she, what she said? Yeah, it, it does. Um, I think there was, you know, what wasn't it? What wasn't embedded in that content, uh, in that quote, was perhaps also slightly a bit more of a practical angle. I.e., we, we don't even know where to start with our apples and and what to do. I spoke to a company, a lady who does, uh, who, who owns a company or is a founder of a company that soil sampling, and she says, yeah, the trees are a problem because our machines can't navigate around it so easily. So, uh, <laughs> uh, so, so that's perhaps what she. Was was referring to as well it's just easier on wide open land yeah um, it is and i mean we we've we've recently just completed a, a soil project in the south downs national park one of those farms that we worked with was a was had a sizable orchard on the farm and we did do soil organic matter um testing in that gps referenced and and yeah you, you've got to adapt the format of your testing a little bit to to take into account the tree lanes and everything and actually what we found because we because it was a, a something we hadn't 
really done before. We, I, I started taking um, measurements directly under the trees and, and directly in the centre of the mid-row, and there was quite a significant variability between the two. Um, so I understand what she means, you know, that um, there is going to be challenges in terms of sampling within that environment because there is a quite variability between in a fairly short distance across the across the field um, or across the, the cropping area. But nothing that you can't overcome if you if you if you're seriously interested in improving the soil in your orchard. No, no, because it, and, and, and if anything, an orchard that's um, laid out very methodically and, and not just a not necessarily a traditional orchard where the trees are, are not necessarily laid out um, to a pattern, but where you've got orchards that are laid out to a very specific pattern, you can sample sample to that specific pattern and you can therefore divide the field up into very specific management areas that, that you can sample accordingly. So it's not, no, it's it's not um, not insurmountable at all. Craig, o- over to you. Um, my final quote that I want to throw at you guys. Kit Papworth, who farms arable in the Norfolk area. He said to me a quote that I love, but I'd like to test it. Um, He said, you'll either farm for improvement in soil and carbon, or you will farm for the marketplace. I mean, to grow food and sell it. As he said, and personally, I don't see a lot of crossover here. So we're going to go crossing over more into the commercial case, sort of, and and, and the commercial implication of going regen and carbon sequestration. And I'd like to ask you, is it really as black and white as that? Um, The technology is always evolving. I mean, I have you guys in this conversation because you're the experts with your finger on the pulse. And, and and so do we really have to accept that, you know, when you go regen, you're going, your yields are going to drop and your, your margin will improve. But overall, you know, your farming will change and you're, you by pushing your land less hard, uh, you'll get slightly less out of it. But that's in the long run a good thing. Is it really st- still like that? Or are we looking at a future where we can say, no, it actually makes no difference and we'll end up with better soils? Personally, the, sh- the short answer to that question for me is no, a- absolutely not. And the day that we settle for that and accept that is the day we stop learning and stop progressing as as farmers and growers and advisors, is, is my honest opinion. And you know, to break that question down further and you know, the introduction of new technologies can improve efficiencies, outputs, all while being more sustainable generally i do think it can but we've got an awful lot to learn uh define the technology would be my first question here yeah, are we talking about advancement in technology of the physical machines that we're using in the field whether that be types of cultivators harvesters machinery that we use as iconography for farming you know the, the old tractor steel and diesel sort of things advancements in machinery that gets more efficient uh, less reliance on on, on fuels, fossil fuels, so to so to speak, you know, there's an awful lot of work going on in the world of robotics. Uh, albeit the, the the general consensus is that it lends itself more to small scale farming at the minute, but by no means does that mean it isn't going to be scaled up and in in the future be more commercially available. You know, with what we do within our business, been fortunate enough to get involved with various robotic projects and. You know, we even ran some projects off our, off our own back route with regards to robotics and farming. And it's a really exciting space. It's quite sci-fi still. And you know, as a, a farmer at heart, like all, all, all of us are you know, on this call, it does boggle the mind when you see a tractor going up and down a field with no operator on it. It's hardly making a mark on the soil because the machinery is smaller. 
because you can run that smaller machine over a longer amount of time. You don't have to feed that robot. You don't necessarily have to have to pay its labor for every hour. So it can work 24 hours a day in theory. Um, it doesn't have a family, so it doesn't have to come back in the shed at certain times and, and things like that. So that side of it is fascinating and that's only going to grow exponentially for sure. In terms of the other side of technology, I think of things like how a chemical toolbox, which is, again, controversial in general, let alone in the world of regenerative or even the organic world. Again, it's a completely different story. But as we advance our understanding of of chemistry, it's not as simple as, as maybe getting better chemistry and being able to use it. Yeah, we, we are losing more and more chemicals off our approved lists, particularly in this country, faster than what we can get new approved ones. So when it comes to things like weed suppression, disease risk, all that sort of stuff, it, it's a bit of a balancing act. And when it comes to the argument of doing things sustainably, but taking a yield penalty, there's plenty of examples out there of, of quite forward, cutting edge thinking farmers that have been deploying techniques and you know, I used the phrase regenerative, it's, it's generally the word, word to describe it, some of these techniques to uh, achieve that. And uh, I don't know uh, this chap personally, but I've, I've seen a farmer called Tim Parton speak before. When I listened to him, it really grabbed me, probably like no other farmer's speech has, uh, or presentation has grabbed me before because it just seems so left field to me. And some of the techniques that this particular farm was employing, I think it's about a 300 hectare farm, so it's quite sizable. You know, it's not small holding, but it's not massive estate sort of territory. So somewhere where middle ground and that farm had really tapped into the idea of understanding soil biology a lot more. And it, it was more detailed than I thought, you know, just as general farmers were, were even capable of doing to the point where uh, this farmer has almost turned his local farm into its own biome whereby the processes that that farm has undertaken over a period of time you know this doesn't just happen overnight and the farm management process that they've built over time has developed a system whereby the crops that that farm's growing and the techniques that they're using if you tried to deploy those techniques and those crop varieties and and those practices on some new fresh virgin soil on a neighbor's farm or at the other end of the country it wouldn't work And that's because the entire ecosystem of the farm has been really honed in to what this farm is trying to achieve. And it was really quite fascinating. And to the point where this farmer is even brewing his own biology, literally brewing his own biology on farm and then applying that to the land. And I think some of it goes down with with the uh, the establishment method, with the drill uh, and things like that is in a bid to promote that part of the of the soil. Soil is made from the biology, the chemistry and the physical components. And the one that is least understood by miles is definitely the biological. You know, we're starting to get somewhere with understanding chemistry and the physical aspects and different soil types and what that means. But for me personally, biology is a, is an area that I'm really trying to understand a bit more, but it is really complex. And for want of a better phrase and pun intended, you know, soil science is a real can of worms. It's uh, really fascinating. And in that particular instance, yes, this farm is using what's generally coined as regenerative farming techniques, they're reducing their costs, yes, because they're using less herbicides, less pesticides. In fact, I don't think they've even applied pesticides for, for the last five years or so, um, such as the way this ecosystem has been developed. You know, their margins, have, they've seen savings of up to £50,000 a year, I think it was, yet they have also still managed to gain a, a general yield increase on, on wheat. And that was the crop that I saw him speaking about, wheat. They were still getting a, um, a yield increase of about one. 
ton per hectare today than what they were 10 years ago when they first started out on the journey. So for me, that's a that's a valid use case where someone has put this into practice on farm and it's working. And I think when it's coming from a farmer as well, farmers learn from farmers the best. They'd rather hear advice from another farmer that's practically employing it than say an advisor or a university academic telling them what they should be doing. Seeing is believing in a lot of cases. And when you have case studies and farms like that that are doing this, and I'm sure Tom could name a few down in, in his neck of the woods that are doing very similar things if it's not not his own own farm for example so those case studies are out there it's about promoting the, those success stories and, and sharing it because sharing that knowledge will allow uh, other farmers to adopt and everyone then goes in in the in the right direction i should say kit if you're listening i know i totally put your quote out of context Please don't come knocking on my door. You're not the villain of this piece. And I know that Kit uh, in, later on, I mean, he, he would agree with a lot of what you're saying. And uh, for example, the use of technology and smart retractors and all that kind of stuff, he'd fu fully agree with. The thing that he didn't really get into was the full regen of no-till. That, that, that's the bit that he ruled out for himself. But I think he would adopt anything I, I, else. I think that quote itself of, of how it was phrased there is still valid though. And I, I completely get that. And one thing I, I found interesting um, with some of the work we've been exposed to over the last few years is actually that it's a big, it's almost like a sociology experiment with farmers. Farmers aren't all your stereotypical characters. There are different pockets of, um, of demograph, uh, demographic uh, within the farming community. You know, from your stereotypical hard-nosed farmer, I just want to make money, all the way through to your uh, really forward-thinking farmers that are wanting to integrate every aspect of their, their environment and business so that it can all improve and it's a completely different subject but i do think that's a lot lot to do with it. it's farmer mentality so let me pick you up pick up and, and and throw that out to to tom and anthony because you mentioned that there's that the example of your farm who's essentially um researched its own circumstances and came up with a way that made it work meaning their soil is is more healthy they're improve their yield and presumably if they want to they can sell their carbon credits too that's a fantastic example and you are absolutely right that's kind of what the world needs to hear that it doesn't have to be like that however positing this and i'm willing to be shot down on this but just for some farmers this might be a little scary right because you're you're kind of saying in order to get to that you might have to do a lot of experimentation a lot of research you may or may not be equipped for it you may need help from someone else Mm, you know, I'm just going to do what I know. And that involves synthetic fertilizers and uh, tilling. So so I, I suppose I should ask Anthony about this. I mean, is there any advice that is applicable to any farmer uh, who is interested in regen and carbon sequestration? And it doesn't matter where they are in this country. I, you know, it's like a one, two, three. Here's how you start. This is what you this is what you need to do in order to get started. Is there such a thing that you the advice that you would give to any farmer? I think the whole the whole point of regenerative agriculture is that there's not necessarily um, a rule, but you can open up, start at the beginning, work your way through, and at the end of it, you will be regenerative. It doesn't, I don't think it works like that. Every single farm, as, as we've just sort of alluded to there, every single farm is going to be different. Every business is going to be different. Um, and so everybody's going to be starting at it and looking from a different um, angle and perspective. And so for each farm, they they kind of need to sit down, work out where, where they are and where they want to go within this. And if their priorities are 
reducing inputs and that's something they've got to focus and look at if their priority is increasing biodiversity then that's something they've got to, that that's their starting point every everybody's going to have a different set of priorities and a different and therefore a different starting point so no I, if there's one piece of advice i think i'd, I'd give everybody it if you want to start the journey, then then you've you've got to sit down and figure out what your goals are and what your aims Define are. Define your goals, absolutely. How about you, Tom? I mean, on the livestock sector, is it the same thing? Is it like yes, you're everyone's different, but if you know what you want, um, there is a path to it. Yeah, and and I think and then I know we've um, prefaced um, Kit's quote, but I don't think the three of us would be interested in a less productive, less profitable, less sustainable system. I, I genuinely think that with good management, with with an open mind, you know, that there is some very low-hanging fruit, simple changes in grazing management, um, the understanding of your own soil analysis, taking things interest you. I mean, most farmers are either interested in the livestock or the machinery or the environment they farm in, along with their profitability. So you sort of work with you would work with the most suitable thing. If it's an arable person, you probably start with tillage and then fertilizers if, and rotation. The way the market is progressing with, you know, now there's now contracts available where you can grow two crops side by side by cropping. This is adding diversity. It means you can grow a nitrogen fixing crop with a cereal crop. I genuinely think the next 20 years is going to be so exciting to the open-minded um, next generation of, of agriculturalists. And I don't see it will be yield limiting. I think there will be a reduction in synthetic and salt-based fertilizers because we understand that the more biologically stable, the, the more natural fertilizers have their place. Um, so it, yeah, it's, it's the farmers having the confidence in themselves to understand what interests them and work from their interests forward and an understanding of their soils. And that might be as simple as their own observations, you know, looking at the plants, looking, um, looking for areas of compaction. Compaction is a big problem in agriculture that um, can be ameliorated with machinery or rotation with different crops and things. So I think it's just encouraging the farmers to look at what they've got and understand their own farm and what interests them and start from that point of interest and confidence. What I'd like to ask you next is more about less the future but kind of like the immediate world that we live in and since the last podcast uh, where we focused on ukraine and the war in ukraine it was already happening then but it certainly is happening now is we've had well, the beginning of an explosion in, in in prices across the board in everything including obviously food and so some of the farmers that I've spoken to indicated to me that, well, we were thinking about making changes and going a bit regenerative or, um, but now with the wheat price at 320 a ton or whatever it is, you know, we know we can afford fertilizer no matter what it costs, our margin is good. And so we're just gonna, you know, crank it out as much as we can. Now, again, I'm kind of, you know, exaggerating to make a point, but is, the regenerative agenda stymied a little bit? Is it being held back by a sort of like there's famine on the horizon in certain countries in this world because the food that's come out of Ukraine is missing? So therefore we have a hole to plug, prices are high, and this stuff right now is a bit of a luxury. Um, do you see any evidence of that in your conversations with some farmers uh, or not? On the face of it, the farm gate price for take wheat, for example, is is very good. But the input prices are still staggeringly expensive. And um, I mean, even the price of wheat has come back a little bit since it's high in the uh, mid-May. 
So that the shine may have been taken off that a little bit in the last couple of weeks. But um, I'm still getting farmers asking or, or saying, I'm, I'm looking at the farm gate price and I'm looking at my input prices. I'm, I'm struggling to make the numbers stack up at the moment, even now. So there, there, there is still a little bit of doubt in the industry, I think, as, as to whether they can make it work. And, and so I, I suspect with the price of input costs, looking at different ways of cutting inputs is still very high on people's agenda or most people's agenda. Um, and so the principles around um, regenerative agriculture, I suspect, are are probably just as relevant as they always were. And, and sort of going back to what we were talking to a minute ago, regenerative agriculture, it has to be a commercial prospect. If it's not a commercial prospect, it, it falls flat on its face from the word go. So I think there is still doubt uh, in, the, in the industry. I think people are looking, still looking for ways of doing things differently. And, um, and, and I, I think some of the ideas that are being banded around ticks, ticks the boxes with that in mind. So, yeah, I think we've still got We've still got some changes to make yet. I think what um, Anthony has highlighted and, and what we all know um, is that change is coming, that with, with climate change, with um, the decoupling of subsidies within British agriculture, we've got to look at models abroad that are successful. And with higher rainfall events, with higher drought events, with more extreme temperatures, the transition to regenerative, to reduce sort of reducing tillage, to cover cropping, to um, just puts the resilience back in the soil. So I think Florian's comment about you know this is a moment in time with with very high input costs and output costs, and so the margins are still there for the good ones. But at some stage in the next five years, you're going to have to jump into a, a way of farming where you. Um, where you are more sustainable financially and commercially and agroecologically because it makes sense it makes damn fine sense farming like this without the reduced tillage without the high input without the damaging chemicals you can still use inputs you can still use but there's ones which we know suit the soils better which build organic matter and is resilient so it's absolutely right. Today is a moment in time, but whilst there's still an element of subsidy from the government, whilst the market is quite dynamic, I think it's a heck of an opportunity for those farmers who have the inclination to start to analyze their own journey. But, you know, there is, there is those which are less resting on their laurels, but I, I think that within that, there is still a heck of an opportunity to embrace um, change, however small they be. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Craig? Yeah, it's a it's a great question, and um, obviously very topical of what what's going on and and the um, the terrible state that that part of the, the world is in. But I think it's an opportunity just to point out that yeah, regenerative agriculture as a philosophy, it, I, I don't think it has to be binary. You, know, you don't have to wake up one day and say, right, I'm going to be a regenerative farmer. Uh, you can adopt the techniques and and work it to suit with the current situation. You know, what's to say? Oh yeah, okay put more wheat cropping in in the ground in this immediate moment in time because we know that there is a, a premium and a demand for it it doesn't mean that you can't establish and and uh, establish that that crop in a way that isn't considered to be using regenerative techniques and you you go back to plowing the field before and and, and smashing it to bits with with all sorts of chemicals and and what what have you about by any means you can still adopt a lot of the useful practices that are reverberated in the regenerative world to, to establish wheat cropping. Yes, in one sense, it does go against one of the main philosophies of regenerative agriculture, which is diverse cropping and rotation. But 
at the moment with the way way the world is it, there's obviously a, a need for it and yeah it's not only the uk as well that needs to answer that question it, it's everywhere in europe to help the shortfall you know, i think a lot of people didn't realize actually how big the ukraine is <laughs> until it's become more highlighted on, on the news yeah the land mass is just immense so it's okay us sat here in the uk with our tiny field sizes saying oh yeah we're going to cram as much wheat in the in the ground as possible in the grand scheme of things it's a drop in the ocean when we we look at the deficit it's trying to make up plus what the rest of europe can, can contribute as well so it needs to be a joined up approach across the various nations as well but for me i don't think it should be an excuse to say oh no regenerative has to go on hold regenerative agriculture is almost a bit like religion can be can be thought of in that you don't just wake up and you're suddenly a full-blown convert you know there's aspects of it that you can incorporate into your life to get the the, the fulfillment or the, the productivity whatever it is may be uh, it, it shouldn't be black and white i don't think okay so we're we shouldn't be taking a step back uh and i agree with that uh, you think it's a good thing in its own right and it's funny how we actually haven't spoken about the credits at all it seems like all of you you three agree that taking care of the soil is just good business sense uh, and you know carbon credits are the thing on top but i'd like to round this conversation off with a question that's just occurred to me i think all of you have one thing in common which is that you went to college to study agriculture, but you came to regenerative farming through a, essentially a personal experience. You you went to, Anthony went to Australia, you met people who kind of showed you the way, uh, uh, same with Tom. You both took your ideas out of uh, the US of all places. Is this stuff not taught in college? Why are we getting to this point right now that regenerative for the last five years has been really coming to the front? Um, but it seems like it's not been taught in college. Is, it, is this a fair summary or is this something that's been around for a long time? I'd just like to understand why it's taken so long, really, to adopt practices that seem to be such common sense. So, Anthony, please. Short answer is no, it, has, it hasn't been taught in colleges. I mean, when I came through uni in the early 2000s, uh, I was taught very conventional uh, approach to to agriculture with everything all all the different enterprises split apart and taught separately and the agronomy side of it was taught very much here's the problem here's the chemical solution to fix that problem and then there's another problem so here's another chemical solution to fix that problem and so everything was slotted into its individual box for um you know each problem was put into a box with a solution for it whereas i think although the main proponents of regenerative agriculture have been screaming about this for 30 years. Nobody's really been taking any notice of it because they haven't really needed to. But now as as things start to change, as, as we start to experience more climate variability, as we start to see um, yields plateau and, or even drop away despite increasing inputs, people are starting to wake up and realise that actually there's, there's, there's something else at work here and that we need to look at... Um, look at how we solve these problems on a broader scale rather than trying to fix individual symptoms there's a there's a greater problem that needs to be addressed behind that and so it's i, I think it's coming within the colleges and, and and i know you know harper adams has, has started to build around regenerative principles and things like that so so it's coming but um it's taking a while and i guess the other aspect to that is that a lot of the research and a lot of the a lot of the research behind it is all sponsored by by big companies and, and they're out there to to get a, a particular result. 
I was going to ask that. Was, was, is Harbor, Harbor Adams uh, sponsored by Bayer and BASF? <laughs> well, I, I, you know, it's it's the way the system's been built. Researchers are, aren't paid by government anymore, or very few of them are. They're, they're paid by the big ag companies to, to research their products. And um, so there's going to be a certain amount of bias within that, I guess, not wishing to court too much controversy. But um, you, you, you do find yourself following the money quite a lot in these situations and um, doubting what influence that, that money has. Thank you. Great. Uh, yeah, a couple of points on that. Uh, when it comes to ag colleges and, and play, things like that, I do think some of the issue is the fact that students are young at that, that point. And you know, when I think back to when I was 16 or 17, yeah, I was interested in Ferraris and Lamborghinis. I wasn't necessarily obsessed with understanding how to... Uh, run those vehicles, fuel them and, and all the efficient efficiencies. And I see that with with a lot of um, young people getting into agriculture. They see the shiny red, big red tractor or green or any other colour. Um, the big machinery, you know, that, that vision of what farming is. And that takes precedence over the brown stuff, which is what everything comes from. And yeah, yeah myself... Yeah, predominantly my education was just conventional university actually but more more geography specific so you know i've gone through education learning about soil and things like that so that's what i was interested in whereas i think a lot of ag students are going to ag college to learn how to run a farm and do all the the operating uh, procedures that, that goes on on farm whether it's driving tractors or, or operating um milking parlors all that side of things and the soil tends to take a bit of a, a back step so yeah i could probably argue that maybe more attention to detail and understanding soil should maybe come in earlier than agricultural college to get more people interested in what is essentially a, a basic element of our industry which is understanding the soil it's an importance not only within our industry but in life yeah, everything has to come come from it uh, in terms of, of, of what we eat and, and grow so i think that's uh, one of the key things key things for myself and secondly i think that just general demographic of how farming families and industry works it's uh, it's very close-knit and most people that are going for agricultural college or, or what have you second third fourth generation farmers within their family so there's a lot of inheritance going on there and when i mean inheritance not necessarily the physical side of it but the the mentality side is inherited. I work with an awful lot of, of farmers in different disciplines, different demographics, and it's quite common for me to come across people my age, uh, so farmers that are like in the 20s, and when you question some of them about, okay, why are you doing this, why are you doing that? The answer will usually be, oh, well, mum always does this, dad always does that at this time of year, and that's just the way it's been, and it doesn't get questioned. So the general, again, going back to the sociology side of understanding farmers and, and lineage and, and all that side of things is a lot to answer for as well, I think. It's very rare you get outside people maybe coming into agriculture. It's more inherited. I've heard that one before. You must have been sitting in front of your TV and, and shaking your fist at Clarkson with his Lamborghini tractor. <laughs> it's like, no, he's undoing everything. <laughs> okay, well, I, I, I was more jealous, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> There you go. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, Tom, I don't know whether you, you want to add anything to the sort of lack of education or I'm assuming it's changed now. I think both the guys and yourself have highlighted something almost subliminally. The, before Anthony came back and he and I could throw ideas and uh, before I met Craig, 
Um, a few years ago, I was introduced to a WhatsApp group of um, journalists and chefs and regenerative farmers to try and work out what regenerative farming was, what the, what the hallmarks of it were, you know. And virtually every single one, much as Anthony and I and Craig were, were um, either first generation farmers who were starting out or they were people who'd been in industry and come back and looked at it and thought, hang on, this is this is a corrupt model. We're using more and more um, active ingredient from these pesticides to get the same effect that we did at the start of their, their lifestyle, that we're using more and more nitrogen with less and less organic matter in our soils. And, and, and I think that ability to um, ask the question, that, that strength of character, maybe it's an age thing where you've just had that a time away and to come back and just ask some simple questions. That was certainly a hallmark a few years ago because it wasn't being taught. I think there is interest in that now, but but so many of the um, regenerative farmers that we work with have read a book or they've been on their own journey and they and they seek more knowledge from from Anthony or, or Craig or myself to help them furnish that journey because educationally and practically and from a commercial point of view, why, why would your agronomist encourage you to use a lot less chemicals um, and less machinery and go to perennial croppings where there's less seed to sell. So there's less, there's very little commercial impetus towards regenerative farming, but there's a heck of a lot of um, curiosity to it. And um, I think things have changed, but I think you, you made a very fair point. And I, I just don't think it was supported um, uh, from, a, from a scholastic or an educational point of view. And, and I think people have had to find their information. I think it's more available now, but that is, yeah. it's something very dynamic and changing now. That seems to be the lesson that I've learned from this. Uh, every farmer I've spoken to has found their own way into this through somebody else uh, uh, and not necessarily through education and certainly not through tradition. Uh, in mm -hmm. fact, tradition, as, as far as I've heard, uh, seems to hold a lot of farmers back because if you grow a cover crop, but your next door neighbor doesn't, and then they, it's, it's that thing, you know, you, you don't want to stick out. I'm not a farmer. I can't really relate to that. It's funny, tradition seems can be quite short-sighted, apparently, because, I mean, one of the things that we've started doing home here is turning the sheep on the winter cereals and grazing the winter cereals. And first mooted the idea to Dad, he threw his hands up in horror and said, what the hell are you on about? Of course we're not going to do that. And then he sat there and thought about it for a little while, and he said, well, your granddad used to do that, actually. So a lot of this is, is taking a step back and, and, and looking back two generations instead of one and, and seeing what people were doing back in the, whatever, the 40s and um, raising winter cereals. So you, you, you take it, you're removing the disease from the overwinter disease. So you're cutting back on your fungicides. You're, you're grazing, the, structurally grazing the plants. So you're cutting back on the need for growers. You're processing organic matter and biomass through the sheep. So you're chucking on a bit of nitrogen and phosphate. So you're cutting back on the amount of fertilizer you need. So it, it's, you know, it's just looking at different practices with a slightly different set of eyes and a different understanding of the, of the science behind it and improving the, the management as you go. Fantastic. Really cool. Craig, did, you, did anyone want to add, add, um, add anything more? Yeah. I mean, I could speak for days, but no. <laughs> yeah, I, I was just going to add, add to that. I think exposure is key. That's kind of what's been highlighted. Exposure to different practices exposure to different ideas and whether it's actually what's going on on farm or just basic education exposure to these different platforms and, and just to throw it back to uh, your comment about Jeremy Clarkson and, and what he does on his farm I think that program and what he's done 
has brought more exposure for British farming to the general public than any other institution could probably have hoped for, even if they tried, albeit indirectly. And yeah, I'm one of those sad people that will watch videos on, on YouTube of, of things like that. And a lot of the comments surrounding that programme were predominantly people from non-agricultural world. That, that's the main audience. And the amount of comments people are saying about, oh, we had no idea this is how farms worked. And I'm sure that programme of Clarkson's Farm will be responsible for many people getting involved in agriculture, whether they're a 15, 16 year old boy or girl in school deciding what they want to do with their lives or someone who's having a midlife crisis and then decides they want to turn into a first generation farmer. Yeah, anywhere on that spectrum, I honestly think people will have had their eyes opened by programmes such as that and, and joined with the, uh, with the industry and couple that with the whole environmental gender going on as well which is coming at another angle and getting more engrossed into particularly young people's minds, it's surely only going to be a positive for, for agriculture. Yeah, who would yeah. have thought that we'd end this podcast on a on a celebrating Mr. Clarkson. <laughs> but that's how the conversation went. And it's true, My even my kids, when I told them, oh, let's watch a show on farming, were like, boo. And then, you know, like after one or two episodes, it was like, can we watch another Clarkson, please? Uh, and that, uh, you know, the city kids, um, They've never been on a farm, so uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, that it's embedded something in them uh, and an understanding that wasn't there before. That's certainly true. I love this conversation. It was fantastic. Uh, I, I thank you very much for your time. I think we went much deeper than I initially thought we would. Um, and uh, all I can do is say thank you to you guys. Um, and uh, yeah, this was great. <laughs> Speechless. <laughs> Thanks for having us. We could have gone on for hours. One of the things about these podcasts is the enthusiasm and passion that comes with discussions about soil. So what did I take away from it? It is interesting that Tom, Anthony and Craig all came to regenerative farming through their own observations and mentorship and not through university. It's interesting because these ideas, the ideas that you know go with regenerative farming and carbon sequestration are not new. They've been around for, I would say, as long as agriculture itself. Well, it doesn't matter. What does matter right now is that all three agree that regenerative agriculture makes business sense for every farmer. And so I conclude by apologizing to Ali Kapper, Kit Patworth, and any other former participant on this series whose words are mangled beyond recognition. You did it for a good cause. And so I sign off. It's been great to have you and talk to you again soon. This is Florian Ritzman and the Future Farm Podcast. <laughs>